let's, let's just pray, and then we'll get started here. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you that we can gather together in freedom. Uh, we thank you for our, our troops, our, our uh, Marines, our airmen, our sailors who uh, give us that right. We ask, Lord, that you protect them. Heavenly Father, we thank you most of all for what you've done for us through your Son, that through faith in him we have an imputed righteousness and also atonement. And Lord, we ask that you'd help us think well upon your word, that we would know it well, that we would think hard, and that this word would dwell within us, and it would conform us to the image of your Son. It would change us, that we live lives that are pleasing and holy in your sight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you can see, we're looking at the fall, the sinfulness of man in the gospel. And this evening, we're going to start in the Old Testament, but we will quickly be getting into the New Testament because what I want to show you this evening is that the fall and the subsequent gospel, the pro, what's called the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel in Genesis 3.15, is actually what the whole Bible is structured off of. It's the thread that goes through the whole Bible. And so we'll be seeing this gospel all the way through the New Testament. And so that's where we're going to be going this evening. My prayer is that at the end of the evening, you will see that salvation has been the same yesterday, today, and forever, that God is not going from plan A to plan B, but that he's always been on plan A, okay? And that the gospel has always been the same, again, yesterday, today, and forever. So with that, let's um, dive right in. And I want to start about talk, talking about Adam, how he tended the garden alone, and that, of course, um, alludes to the fact that he's going to need a helper that's suitable. And in Genesis 2.4, it says this. It says, this is the account. Remember, that's Toledoth, the generations of the heavens and the earth, when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now, first of all, I want to start talking about this phrase here. It's Yahweh Elohim. And this is the first time now the covenant name for God is used, Yahweh and, in fact, Yahweh Elohim is only used in Genesis 2 through Genesis 3, and then it will never be in the Pentateuch again until Exodus 9-8. Okay, now why would that be? I don't know for sure, but let me just throw out a possibility. Elohim is sometimes generally used for God in a generic sense. Perhaps Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is making sure that we know that this is just no you know, God of the pagan nations, no generic God, but this is Yahweh. This is the covenant-keeping God that is declared men and women fallen sinners. And when we get to Genesis 3.15, of course, is the one who's declaring the great plan of salvation. But I don't know. I don't know why it's a shift to Yahweh Elohim here, okay? But that may be one reason why. All right, now we'll continue on here. In the, um, the day here that you see, Notice it's yom, and there's a preposition. So in the day, this indicates that the day is used for longer periods of time than just a 24-hour period. I'm just pointing that out, that when it comes to day, we always have to look at context. There are times when the day certainly indicates more than a 24-hour period. Okay. Now, I'm not going to get into the dating or the age of the earth this evening. If you want to bring it up in the question and answer time, that's fine. But I just want to point out that yom, context, dictates often how we understand it it being used. And certainly it's used sometimes for a 24-hour period, sometimes it's more than that, okay? Now, when we get to Genesis 2.15 through 17, we see this cultivation that the man is going to do. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Now, let me just stop there. Remember, in Genesis 1.2, we saw that the earth was without form and void, and the implication there was that there was no one to cultivate it, okay? And it had not yet been tilled. And then we read in Isaiah 45:18 that the remedy, the remedy to the earth being without form, remember tohu? The remedy to that is a man to cultivate it, to work it. And we saw that again in Isaiah 45:18, okay? And so again, Genesis 1-2 sets us up for the need that God is going to use a co-regent, that is man, to work the earth. Okay, Not that he has to, but he chooses to do for his glory. And then we continue. It says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Now, notice this phrase here, commanded the man. I just want to point this out that 
at the time the command is given that he can eat of every tree except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the woman is not there. Okay? So remember, when she succumbs to the temptation of the serpent, Adam is really responsible for her, isn't he? Because he was the one that's initially given the command. And so by him not stepping in, he's hanging her out to dry, as it were. Okay? Another way to look at it, however, is remember he makes in Genesis 127, he makes them male and female, so he made Adam. He made mankind, right? And so a woman can certainly represent man equally as man does. However, when we approach the New Testament, we know that Adam is ultimately on the hook for it. Why? Because the command was given to him, and he left his wife, so to speak, out to dry. That's the implication that we get here. Now, the other thing I want to point out is, notice it says, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. A lot of people will say, well, when Adam eats of the fruit and Eve, they don't die right away. A couple things on that. First of all, let me mention the idea of death. Certainly, it's implied physical and spiritual death. But there's also a Hebraic notion of this idea of separation. In fact, Paul teaches us that death is separation in 2 Corinthians 5.8. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? And so right away we have this idea of separation from God in the garden. In fact, we have separation from the garden itself. We have separation from the tree of life. And so right away, this. so the point is, is that death is in some sense inaugurated immediately because there's separation. Physical death certainly took longer. Adam didn't die right away. And spiritual death, of course, Revelation 20.15 says that all whose names are not found written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. That awaits uh, the way from judgment. But the point is, is death can be seen as separation, it can be seen as physical death, and it can also be seen as eternal death, that is, in the eternal lake of fire. So just realize, though, that the Bible is not contradicting itself. It's just probably indicating the source of separation and death in its totality being begun. Okay, now let's keep rolling here. In verses 20 through 23, then, um, it says, The man gave names to all the cattle. He gave names. Why? Because God gave him the right to do so. He gave him the command to do so. And so he is, again, using his authority that God has given. It says, And to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field, but for Adam... There was not found a helper uh, suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Okay. Now notice the man is starting, he's starting to really get poetic on us. <laughs> so he's pretty excited about this woman. Okay. <laughs> the other thing I want to point out is this term helper. And actually, um, I like, in fact, it's suitable right after that, but the term helper is at Zer. And we find this, for instance, in Psalm 22:19 that God is seen as a helper. We see it also in uh, Psalm 32, I believe. We see it all over the Bible that the helper that God looks for for a man is one that is really able to help him. This is not an inferior person that is a woman, but she's a capable helper. That's the implication. Now, does that mean that she's on top of the man? No, but it certainly doesn't mean that she's regarded as, um, you know, secondhand yard waste either. I mean, she's a capable helper, and she is genuinely part of uh, what makes up mankind. That's the point. Now, the other point I want to talk about is where this phrase, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, this is the idea then that there's a covenant, and it's almost the idea of a kinship covenant, although they're certainly not related in the familial sense, but it's this idea that there's a covenant between this man and this woman that ought not to be broken by either party. And I'm going to get into that in the next slide the marriage covenant. But let me just show you evidence of this idea of bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh elsewhere. For instance, in Genesis 29:14, many of you remember Laban, the uncle, of course, of Jacob. It says that he said to him, that is to Jacob, surely you are bone of my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. The idea there is if Laban would do something dishonorable, he would be therefore breaking a covenant. 
a kinship covenant, right? Um, we see the same thing, Second Samuel 5, 1. The tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. All right, so again, it's the idea that there's a covenant. We are like your family, and you can't break up family. We're, we're knit. We're bonded together in this covenant relationship. That's what's being stated there. And so we see this covenant of marriage idea, and the more I've studied this in Genesis, the more I see how important marriage is before God. And we'll talk a little bit about a marriage right here. In verses 24 through 25 in Genesis, it says, For this reason a man... Now, by the way, remember, this is still Adam speaking. Okay, He says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, the first thing I want to talk about is this, they shall leave, that is, the man will leave his father and mother. We see this phrase, azav, and it's often used in conjunction with Israel forsaking their covenant with Yahweh. Okay? So right away, the very term shall leave and be joined, you're going to see, shows us that what's at stake here is a covenant relationship. All right? So this isn't something that man has made alone, but this is something that God recognizes. So, for instance, in Jeremiah 1.16, we see Azab is actually used. Here it says, I will pronounce my judgments on them concerning all their wickedness, whereby they have forsaken, there's Azav, um, and it says, me and they have forsaken me and have offered sacrifices to other gods and worship the works of their own hands. Now, likewise, the be joined is the idea of becoming faithful or uh, joined to a covenant, and that is... Uh, davek, be joined, often used to establish a covenant. And so we see that in Deuteronomy 4.4 where the Lord says, And you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. Okay, And so that would be the same word that's used up here. So what's the point? The point is, is that there's a covenant between a man and a woman. Okay, And it's in the sight of God. And therefore, I remember Bob said a few weeks ago, it's okay to be miserable in this life, but it's not okay to forsake your covenant before God. That's exactly right. We are to be faithful to our covenant before God. And one of the reasons why, notice it says, and the man and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed. This, of course, is before the fall. What's interesting is marriage, to a certain, re- to a certain respect, is the last place now um, after the fall where it's safe to be naked again. A man and a woman can be naked and not ashamed. Okay, And when one, in fact, violates the marital covenant, they are now rejecting the totality of that other person. And not only is it a violation of the covenant before God, but it's so hurtful to that other person, and the uh, radical hurt that it imposes upon another person made in the image of God, of course, is looked very dimly upon by God. And so you can see the seriousness of uh, marriage in this very text. Now, to this day, notice I was listening to somebody who was paid a million dollars to go streaking. I don't know if anybody heard that story. I heard it on the radio. I listened to this Patriot station. It was a real bizarre story. But do you notice today we have streakers and not strollers? You know what I'm saying? In other words, there's still shame, isn't there, in being naked, right? And the point is, is that's part of the fall, isn't it? You don't have strollers. You, uh, you have streakers, and that's all part of the shame. Nobody strolls, they streak, okay? And so there's still shame today. Now, when we come to the idea of the fall then, what we're going to see now is the distortion of God's word. What is it that Satan uses to tempt men and women to fall? It's the distortion of his word. It's the deliberate perversion of it, and that's what we're going to see now in Genesis 3.1. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now, what's interesting about this right here is, notice this any tree. It literally is kol, uh, from. It's uh, machol, okay? And so kol, literally, I like it rendered every tree, because I think it just makes it more understandable. You shall not eat from every tree of the garden, so think about what the serpent is saying. He's saying, it's outrageous. You can't eat of every tree of the garden? That's ridiculous. Well, of course, God never said that, did he? It's a complete distortion. He said, you could eat of every tree except one. 
And so Eve even sets him right. He gets it, she gets it right. She sets him straight. Verses 2 through 3, she says, uh, it says, The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. Right? So you're wrong. It's not of every tree or any tree. It's only of, but, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. So she gets the word right. But then this is one that she can't overcome. Verses 4 through 5, Genesis 3, The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, now you see where it says your eyes will be opened, knowing good and evil. These are really synonymous. The real issue that Eve buys into, and therefore Adam, is that they'll be like God. Okay, they'll determine for themselves what is right and wrong. They'll determine for themselves what is righteous and what is sinfulness. Um, they are going to be what I call autonomous. Okay, so sin is the violation, friends, of God's moral law and the attempt to usurp his authority to reign. All sin is the attempt by man to be autonomous. And I like this word because it really defines what all sin is. Um, it comes from auto, meaning self, namas. Anybody who's heard of um, antinomialism means anti-law, right? So namas is law. Literally, if you're autonomous, you're a self-lawgiver. And that is the original sin that they succumbed to because they wanted, again, to define for themselves what's evil and what's righteous. All right? It's a usurping of God's authority. So that's exactly what they bought into. They wanted to be like God. Right? And we see in the book of Revelation at the very end, what do people really want? They want a religion where they will build Babylon once again. Genesis 11, they tried to build their way to heaven, didn't they? Why? They want to be like God. And we'll see it established again in the book of Revelation. Why? Because people want to be autonomous. And that's why in Psalm 2, we see that the Lord, in fact, will take back um, what was taken from him. Uh, important passages like that. Uh, now, let's go to the New Testament real quick. And I want to talk about some implications from the fall of Adam. In Romans 5.12, we see Paul write this. He says, Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered into the world and death through sin... And so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. All right? Now, I want to just focus for the sake of time on this last phrase. And I want you to realize that this phrase, because, is probably, it's probably the right way to interpret this or to translate it. However, it comes from the Greek, ho. Now, just write down on your sheet of paper, um, epi, uh, E-P-I, that is actually a preposition, and it typically means um, upon, on, sometimes among. I think it can be used for in. And then ho is actually an omega in, in Greek, but you can just put an o. And then there's a, a rough breathing mark, and we would see that denoted with a, a ho, okay? So it's literally epi-ho. But anyway, the whole point is it's f-ho, but because there's some things that go on in Greek, but just write epi ho, okay? And literally what that could indicate is the ho is a pronoun, and it's a relative pronoun, and its antecedent could be the one man, that is Adam. So, in other words, it could be literally saying, in whom all sinned. In fact, that was the interpretation of Augustine. So he would have rendered it this way. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men in whom all sinned. Now, what's the significance of that interpretation? Well, the significance of it, it would very clearly indicate then that it was in Adam that you were regarded as being a sinner. Okay, now, to be honest with you, I think that that point is still made even if F-ho is translated with a because, because it's causal. Okay, here's the point. I think what's being stated here, no matter which way you slice it, is this. When Adam sinned, you sinned. I sinned. We were there. God imputed Adam's sin when he sinned to you and I in our account. Okay? So the point being is then, the sin of Adam was accredited to my account even though I was never there. Okay? 
I think that's what's being stated. Now, let's talk a minute about fairness because fairness comes up when you say, well, hey, I wasn't there in the garden. I didn't pick the fruit and maybe I wouldn't have, right? Well, what's interesting is if you and I are going to rightly or try to rightly claim that we are not guilty of Adam's sin, then you and I would not engage in sinful acts ourselves, yet we do. But the Bible makes it very clear that the reason why we sin is because we're sinners. We don't become sinners because we sin. Um, David says in Psalm 51.5 that he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David had no qualms about when he was repenting for his sin to say, yeah, I'm a sinner, and I act upon my sin. Okay, he had it right. He had his theology right. Uh, Psalm 58.3 says that the wicked are estranged from birth. Okay, so the notion is then, and what we call this doctrine, by the way, is the doctrine of federal headship. The idea that Adam, our first representative, he fails miserably And that sin then is therefore imputed to you and I, and therefore you and I are guilty, therefore you and I are born sinners, therefore you and I sin. That's the idea. So that being the case then, one of the answers to the fairness question is, if in fact God did not work by the plan of imputation, then he could certainly not impute the righteousness of Christ to our account as well. Right? And so therefore, if we ever engaged in a sin... We would be guilty, just like Adam, and we do. We do that. And therefore, it's actually to our benefit that God works by the doctrine of imputation because now we can have the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account. Okay, And so he is therefore going to be our new representative, our new federal head. And so um, that's why in 1 Corinthians 15.45, Paul calls Jesus the new Adam. He's the new Adam. And now he is going to be successful in obedience where Adam failed. And that's exactly the point. And, and by the way, this interpretation that, in fact, the sin of Adam is imputed to us, I think is just nailed by the context because in Romans 5.19, it says, through the disobedience of the one man, that is Adam, the many became sinners, but through the righteousness of the one man, Jesus, the many would be made righteous. Okay, and so therefore, you see that Romans 5.12, we are correct in context and interpreting it as imputation. Okay, now, let me take you to the Gospels real quick and talk about this need for the new Adam. When we go to the book of Luke, it's interesting in Luke 3 that the genealogy, it ends this way. It says, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, remember, Matthew's genealogy starts with uh, Jesus being the son of Abraham, the son of David, doesn't it? And then it goes to Isaac and then um, Jacob, Judah. It goes all the way through um, Jesse and David. And then it brings you out to Jesus' parents. And then that's where it stops. Because Matthew's concern is that you realize this Jesus is the promised seed. Okay, he is the seed from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, so forth. Luke's concern is that you see Christ as the new Adam. Okay, Now, what's very interesting in that is in Luke 4, what do we have? Well, we have Jesus going into the wilderness for temptation, don't we? So Jesus goes to be tempted. So now think about Adam. He's in a garden. He's got everything. He's got perfection, and he fails miserably. Jesus doesn't have the comforts of a garden. Where does he go? He goes out into the wilderness. He doesn't have the fruit of every tree except one. He's starving. And yet Jesus doesn't succumb to the temptations of the devil, but rather he stands firm. He says, and remember, by the way, Jesus is also in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Literally the olive press, symbolizing the weight of the sin of the world upon him. And he says, not my will be done, but thine. What did Adam say? Not thine will be done, but mine. So it's completely opposite. And so the point is, is now... We have our Adam. And that's why Luke 3, we see he's the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke 4, Jesus, our new Adam, goes into the wilderness, and he doesn't fail like the other one. Okay? Jesus is our new Adam. And so when he 
uh, and says in uh, Matthew 5.17 that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but rather he came to fulfill them. He literally came to fill to the full the requirement of the law on our behalf. And therefore, when I am standing before God and I have no righteousness of my own, if I have trusted in Christ, his righteousness has been placed on my account and now I have right standing. And by the way, my sins have been placed on him and there we have the great transaction. He's taken my sins and he's given me a righteousness. And so praise be to God that Jesus is the new Adam. So that's what he does for us, okay? Now, let's get to the first gospel then. This is called the proto. That's number, you know, like you hear prototype. That's one. And euangelion is the Greek term for gospel. So that's what scholars often call this, the proto-euangelion. And in Genesis three fourteen through 15, it says, the, and by the way, notice still we're Yahweh Elohim here, right? And again, it started in Genesis 2. I'm really not quite sure why. Maybe somebody has some ideas on that. But anyway, it says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, let me just start right here. Notice God said that there's going to be this warfare in this, or, or this enmity, right, between the, the serpent and the woman. And then it's between uh, the serpent's seed and her seed. Now, the debate has always raged that this seed, this term, is zera, okay? And this is what's called a collective noun. What in the world is a collective noun? Well, a collective noun, you and I use them all the time. We would say deer for a hundred deer. But if there's one deer, we would still say deer, okay? It's just deer, And so we use it as a collective noun. It means the one and the many. Now, this is a very important Hebrew concept. It has to do with corporate solidarity. Okay, And in fact, it ties into the slides that we were just looking at. The idea of the one and the many is this. Israel is going to be the many. And they are going to be pregnant with one. That is the Messiah. And the Messiah, that is who we know to be Jesus, obviously, is going to provide salvation for the many. Okay? Adam, he was the representative of the many. He failed. Again, the idea of federal headship and corporate solidarity. Jesus, the new Adam, represents the many. He's faithful. And if we're incorporated with him, we have his righteousness. So the Hebrew notion of the one and the many is very important, and I'll show you how this plays through. Now, the question is, should we understand primarily the seed here as being in the singular or in the plural? And we actually have our answer right here with he, which in Hebrew is who. And by the way, she is he. <laughs> right, Lincoln? It sounds like who's on first with Abbott and Costello. Okay? It sounds like one of those skits. So the point is, is you have this third person singular masculine pronoun, who, and that literally is, it means just he. So in other words, we know that this seed of the woman has to be a man based on the Hebrew grammar there, right? It has to be a man. That's what's being referred to. And so the point is that this seed isn't the many that's being in view, or primarily in view, but the one. The one is going to crush the serpent, indicating complete victory, yet he himself will take a superficial wound. That's the idea that you come away with. Okay? Now, if that's all you had to go on, that's not a lot. But you know this thing. There's a, you know this one thing. There's a man that's coming that's going to crush the serpent, okay? And the reason why this is important to get it right is many people look at the seed and they always say, well, that's the people of God and we war with Satan. Well, true enough that we, um, how do I say this gently? We flee from Satan and we pray to God that he protects us from Satan, but Satan's crushed by God alone, isn't he? Okay, we're saved by grace alone, and so the the, the point being then is it's one person, it, it's a man that's going to come and do this. Now let me show you another way of, that we can verify our interpretation. That comes from the Septuagint. This is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and let me just read this to you, um, starting. 
Well, I'll just start in the beginning, as otherwise it probably won't make sense. But this is an and. It says, and I will put enmity, and this is anamezan, which is between. This is su. This is you and between the woman and between the spermatos, the seed of you or your seed, and between the seed of her or her seed. Okay, so right here, now where it says um, between the seed of her or her seed, that's where we are right here. Okay? Now, the reason I'm showing you this, remember, this is Septuagint. This is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Notice where we have he in Hebrew, we also have it in the Greek, autas. That's a he, that's a pronoun. Now, why is that so significant? Well, the spermatos is actually, it's in the genitive, okay? Remember, that's the, um, the, the case of possession. It's the sons of Israel. It's David's book or the book of David. It's the case of possession. But yet, this is in the neuter, okay? Well, this is actually masculine. Well, in Greek, there's a rule that if you have a pronoun that's referring back to its antecedent, it has to match it in its gender, and it doesn't. The writers of the Septuagint are deliberately breaking a grammatical rule. They put in a masculine, a third-person masculine singular pronoun, in other words, autas, this would be, this is the masculine, this is the feminine, this is the neuter. They should have put the neuter one in, auta, but they put autas. Why? Why did they break the rule? Because they knew it was talking about a he. They knew it was talking about a man. The writers of the Septuagint knew this passage was messianic. That's exciting. We have an interpretation from the LXX writers of Septuagint showing us this is about the Messiah. Okay? So when we look to Genesis 3.15, this is the first promise. This is the first promise that one day the Messiah will come and he's going to crush the work of the serpent. And we have it validated for us by the Septuagint writers. Now, let me just show you then how this plays out. The Old Testament then, friends, in a real way, is the unveiling of who this Messiah would be, where he would come from, and what he would do. In fact, the whole Old Testament is messianic. In fact, the prophets of old are engaged in teaching not just haphazard prophecies, writing better than they knew. No, they're engaged in teaching messianic doctrine. I talked about this a few weeks ago in First Peter. But let me just show you how the seed promise proceeds. It starts again in Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 9.27, we're going to get into this next week when we talk about the Abrahamic covenant. That's my favorite sections, the dealing with the Abrahamic covenant, I think, in all the Bible. It's just a beautiful section of Scripture. But Genesis 9.27, you're going to see, I think, evidence that the seed will come from Shem. Who comes from Shem? Terah. Who's Terah? The son of Abram, Abraham, right? Or the father of Abraham, I'm sorry. Okay, so the seed we'll see that it will come from Shem. Then we're going to see that the seed will come from Abraham. And then we see in Genesis 15 that the, the seed promise, the Abrahamic covenant, is ratified. God alone cuts the covenant. Abraham's snoozing. He's asleep. Genesis 17, we have the sign then cut by Abraham, but it's not the covenant. It's a sign of the covenant, right? If you asked me to see my family and I showed you a picture... I wish I had one. <laughs> I showed you a picture of my family, and you said, your family's a picture? I would say, no, this is a picture of my family. Genesis 17, the covenant sign is given, not the covenant. The covenant, the reality is given in Genesis 15. The symbol of it is given in 17. Okay, we'll talk about that next time. Genesis 22, the seed will come from Isaac. That's why it's so significant that Abraham's willing to even sacrifice Isaac. Why? Because he knows God will even raise him from the dead because God is faithful to his promises, right? Genesis 25, 23, the seed will come from Jacob. He's, he's renamed, renamed Israel, isn't he? And so he has 12 sons. And out of those 12 sons, we see the seed in Genesis 49, 10 will come from Judah. Then of all the families of Judah, 2 Samuel 7, we see that it'll, the seed will come from David. It's just beautiful, okay? Now, Matthew 1, we get to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew 1, 1 through 2. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. To Abraham was born Isaac, and to Isaac Jacob, and to Jacob Judah and his brothers. What is Matthew doing? He's taking you through the seed promise. That's all he's doing. 
He's taking you right through the seed promise. And he's really starting with Genesis 3.15 because unless you understand that, it doesn't make any sense. Now, again, let's talk about the idea of the one and the many. We get to Galatians 3.16. Paul makes a very bold statement, and I think he's exactly right. Obviously, it's Scripture, right, inspired by God. He says this, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, And to seeds is referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. So what Paul is saying is that whatever seed indicated, the promises of the seed promises, whether it be Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 17, where the seed promise is seen, Genesis 22, that was the promise to Christ. Not to the many. It's first and foremost to the Messiah. Okay, now, when I was at Northwestern College, we had to read a book called Inspiration and Incarnation by a man named Peter Enns. And in this book, Peter Enns' contention, by the way, the subtitle, I should read that to you, Evangelicals and the Problem of the Old Testament. I actually would rename it this way, Inspiration and Incarnation, God and the Problem with Liberal Scholars. (laughs) Okay, something to that effect. Peter N's contention is this. He is saying that New Testament writers are taking Old Testament prophecies and they're playing fast and loose with them. They're changing them to fit a new reality. It's as if he's saying the Old Testament never really was messianic until after the fact. The fact is, Peter N says, because people in the Second Temple period used to take passages and kind of turn them and twist them and make them fit the new context, he says that was valuable or valid for the apostles to do the same thing. Okay? So let me read you an expert from this, and I want to react to it, because I think you're going to see... And by the way, this is infecting evangelicalism. There's a lot of people are starting to hold to this view. And the problem with them holding to this view is they don't understand the seed promise. If they understood the seed promise, they wouldn't hold to this nonsense. Listen to what he says. He says, but Paul, now this is all about Galatians 3.16. Peter ends writes, but Paul interprets this biblical episode to refer not to the promise of land to numerous descendants, but to the means by which one is reconciled to God. It is through promise, not law. And he anchors his interpretation to the singular form of the word. Paul here is employing a technique that was common in his day, namely capitalizing on the interpretive flexibility of certain words or grammatical features. Such an explanation can cause problems for some evangelicals. Paul is using the Old Testament in a way that has nothing to do with how the Old Testament is to be understood in its original context. Okay? And he goes on, the theological point that Paul is arguing here is one that any Christian should say amen to, but how Paul got there can be troubling. Well, what I was troubled with was Peter Enns' reasoning. Okay? Why? Because he's saying that Paul, when Paul says that the seed was Christ, that Paul is taking it out of its historical context. Well, let's back up. If that's the case, why is it in Genesis 3.15 that the seed was in fact the third person singular masculine pronoun? It was one. It was a man. It wasn't the many. And what did the Septuagint say? It broke even a grammatical rule saying, no, it's a man. It's autos, right? It's a man. And so the point is it's ends that doesn't understand. What Paul was doing is he was saying, rooted behind all of the promises concerning the seed is the one. Because if the, if the many don't survive, that is Israel, the one perishes, that is the Messiah, and the seed promise is done. Okay, so the promise, of course, Paul was right. It extends to the Christ. It extends to the one. So Paul was taking it in its historical context. Okay, now let me show you another passage where this comes into play. This concept of the one and the many and the seed promise helps us understand Old Testament prophecy. And I'm going to read you another excerpt here in a minute of Peter ends. But he has an issue here with Matthew chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. And in this passage... We have, remember, Herod is going to murder all of the children, and so Joseph is going to bring the kids down to Egypt, isn't he? To bring uh, Jesus and Mary, I should say. So that's where we are here. Matthew two fourteen through 15, it says, When he, that's uh, Joseph, arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt, 
and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord, by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Okay? Now, let's stop there a moment. Let me read you Peter ends one more time, and I'll just show you his, his beef with this, and I'll react to it. Related to this passage, Peter N. says, For Matthew, Jesus' trip as a boy to Egypt to escape Herod is a fulfillment of Hosea 11.1. Strictly speaking, Hosea's words are not fulfilled with Jesus going down to Egypt, but only upon his return. He's wrong there, and I'll show you. By citing Hosea 11.1, Matthew clearly anticipates that Jesus would eventually come out of Egypt, which is more in line with the wording of Hosea. But now listen to what N says. But the real problem is this. Scanning the context of Hosea 11, it becomes quite clear that Hosea himself is not talking about the boy Jesus, nor is he thinking of a future Messiah. In fact, Hosea 11 is not looking to the future at all, but simply alluding to the past as the context of 11.1 makes clear. And then he says, really, it's all about Israel and them being in bondage to sin, even though God cared for them. Now, what I'm showing you is, again, Peter ends claim that Matthew is taking Old Testament Scripture and just playing fast and loose with it. But let's examine the text. Notice again, Matthew does use Hosea 11.1, Out of Egypt I called my son. And sure enough, Hosea 11.1 says this. It says, When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Okay? Now, one might ask the question, why does Matthew use this Hosea 11.1 1 right here when, in fact, the family's going down to Egypt, right? They're departing to Egypt. Why didn't Matthew use Hosea 11.1 1 just six verses later in Matthew 2.20 and 21 when Jesus and his family are coming out of Egypt because they come back out? The whole point is, the reason why is because the issue isn't whether or not they're departing to Egypt or going into Egypt. The issue is the son. That's the common point of the whole passage. So in Hosea 11.1, 1, it says, When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. See, what happens is Peter N says, Well, this passage is all about Israel. But what did we learn tonight about the seed promise, the one and the many? Who's pregnant within Israel? The one. The son, right? So if Israel doesn't make it out of Egypt, who perishes? The Messiah, the one. Okay? And so the issue isn't coming out of Egypt. The issue is this. In Hosea's day, Hosea was saying this, that the Exodus, God protects his seed by delivering the people out. If the people of God don't leave Egypt during the Exodus... The seed promise is done, God's a liar, and you and I go to hell. We're still in our sins and we can't get out. Okay? But God is faithful, and he protects the seed promise by delivering the people out. Therefore, one day the Messiah will be born from them because they survive. And in Jesus' day, the issue is this. God again protects the seed by taking Jesus into Egypt. So again, the issue isn't whether you're going into Egypt or you're going out of Egypt. The issue is related to the Son. In Hosea's day, when he says, Out of Egypt I called my son, God was faithful to protect the seed. In Jesus' day, he does the same thing. Okay? He protects the seed promise. And therefore, it is an exact fulfillment of Hosea 11.1. 1. Just as God was faithful then to protect the Messiah, he's faithful now. That's Matthew's whole point. Matthew isn't taking it out of context. He's taking it in the only context it can be taken in related to Genesis 3.15, the fact that the seed of the woman would one day come and crush the serpent's head. Related to Genesis 15, that the seed would come from Abraham. Genesis 22, that the seed would come from Isaac and so forth. You see, so that's the whole point. So Matthew's taking it in the historical context. Peter ends is clearly wrong. Now here's the point, friends. If we don't understand the seed promise, this concept of corporate solidarity and the one and the many, we're going to have very difficult times interpreting Old Testament prophecy, okay, as we see in this passage. And that's exactly what's happening with scholars like Peter Enns. Okay, so again, Matthew got it right, Peter Enns got it wrong. Okay, so the gospel is centered then on the seed promise. Let me go to the New Testament. Again, here in Acts chapter 2, 
I, I went through this passage not too long ago, but it's a very important one. This is a, a sermon that Peter's giving, and it's at Pentecost. And he prefaces his sermon by quoting from Joel chapter 2. And the last thing he says is that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And his whole sermon is proving that the person that you should call upon, that is the name of the Lord, is Jesus. Okay? And the supreme evidence that Jesus is the Lord that you should call on is the empty tomb of Psalm 1610. That's the point of Peter's whole sermon. And so then in verses 30 through 31 of chapter 2, Peter says this, he says, And so because he, this is David, was a prophet and knew, he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. This is Psalm 132.11. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Notice here, friends, again, that David knew. He knew that God had sworn to him an oath. He didn't make this up. He wasn't um, guessing. He knew it. And in fact, when it says that he looked ahead, you literally could render that he knew ahead of time. So the point is, friends, the fact that David knew indicates that the prophets in the Old Testament did not just write prophecies, again, better than they knew, but they were engaged in teaching messianic doctrine. The point Peter is making is that David knew that these passages were about the Messiah. Why? Because he knew the seed promise. And so all of these prophets from Genesis all the way to Malachi, they're teaching messianic doctrine because it's all about the Christ. It's all about the Messiah. Here you have just two references, Psalm 132.11 and Psalm 16.10. In Psalm 16.10, Peter's whole point in the sermon is that it can't possibly be talking about David because David is still in the tomb stinking it up. And any of the people back then, they could have gone and dug him up and say, sure enough, he's there. But Jesus wasn't. That's his whole point. And that's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that Jesus was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Okay, according to the Scriptures. Now, what Scripture? I think it's Psalm 1610 because the point being was that the Messiah could not suffer decay. There's kind of an obscure passage in Leviticus 7, and I don't know if it... I'm not quite sure if it has bearing or not, but it's interesting to me that the priesthood, they would have access to some of the sacrifices that they would give, and they were actually able to eat of some of the meat that was left over from the sacrifices, if there were some. And what's interesting, though, is that they could eat nothing after the third day. Now, you can't tell me back in the Middle East, decay technically didn't start in before that, but after the third day, that was when the Hebrews regarded decay as setting in. There was also a belief that the Hebrews had that somehow, now this isn't canonical, but that the spirit somehow hung around the body for three days and the fourth day it left. The point being, though, is the Levitical law, the technical definition, I think, for decay starts at the fourth day. That's why in John chapter 11, when Jesus is going to roll away the stone, you know, um, he's going to call Lazarus out. And isn't it Martha? I think it's Martha says, no, Lord, don't do that. Why? He's, he's, there's a stench, right? It's the fourth day. She makes it a very clear point that it's the fourth day. Well, the Messiah comes out on the third day, and therefore, in technical Hebrew jargon, he doesn't suffer decay. And that's why Paul can genuinely say, according to the Scriptures, he was raised on the third day. So he's the fulfillment of Psalm 16.10. That's the point. Now, again, the point is that the Messiah, this whole passage is about him. And so David was always writing about the Messiah. That's the point. So again, the seed, by the way, the seed here is actually karpos. It's actually for fruit. So this isn't sperma or spermatos. This is actually karpos, but it's synonymous. It really means the same thing. Again, it's a collective noun. The many, that is the Israelites, are pregnant with the one, that is the Messiah. And the one, that is the Messiah, will provide salvation for the many. Okay, again, we see that same concept. Now let's move to Acts 13, 22 through 23. What I'm going to show you now is that this doctrine of the promise, again, the seed promise that we looked at, the first gospel, is everywhere in the New Testament. I'm just giving you a smidgen of them. The promise, it uses the definite article, it's everywhere. Now this is Paul, and he is in Antioch, Pisidian, at a synagogue, and he's preaching to the Jews. Listen to what he says. It says, after he had removed him, 
He raised up David. That's talking about God removing Saul. He raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart. That comes from 1 Samuel 13. Who will do all my will. From the seed, literally, of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. So listen to the content of Paul's gospel. It has to do with the seed. Again, this is the term that we saw in the Septuagint of Genesis 3.15. It's spermatos. And notice, Paul here is again, well, I guess it's Luke who's writing the Acts, but it's in the, it's a genitive singular. So in other words, had Paul been preaching or had Luke intended that this descendants had men literally many? That's typically how we read it in the English, right? There are many descendants. But it's in the genitive singular. So the priority here is on the Christ again. It's on the one, just like Paul says in Galatians 3.16. So think about it. From the seed of this man, that is David, and the seed is primarily singular, talking about the Christ, according to promise, what promise? Well, the promise that a Messiah is going to come and one day crush the serpent's head. Okay, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. That's the gospel. The gospel is about who Jesus is and what he did. Now, there's an important, I think, implication and application to our lives in this. Um, some years ago, I was a, it was probably five years ago, I was a minister of a teenage Bible study, and we had a young man who came out from Teen Challenge. And um, I don't know much about the organization. I, you know, God bless them that they're trying to reach youth and um, they're trying to bring the gospel. But this kid was going to give a testimony. And I'll never forget how disappointed I was in his testimony because all he did was talk about himself. Friends, the biblical testimony, that is preaching the gospel, we are not testifying to who we are. We are testifying to who Christ is. And if we do not do that, that is not biblical testimony. Okay, We have to tell the world who Jesus is because Jesus saves, not me. I can tell you all day long what a screw-up Eric Dalma was, and you can say, well, gosh, that's great. You don't act quite like that anymore. Still a screw-up. My wife will attest to that. But not as big a screw-up, right? But big deal. Sometimes Buddhists aren't as big a screw-ups as they used to be, right? What people need is Jesus. They need to believe in the seed promise in order to be saved. So the gospel is centered on the seed promise. Further on in this same sermon, listen to what Paul says. He says, and we preach to you the good news. This is where we get the term gospel. So this is the gospel, friends. This is the good news of the promise. Notice the definite article. Not a promise, not promises. The promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm. Okay, now here's Psalm 2. You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, again, that's the Psalm 1610 idea, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. There's Isaiah 55.3. So now Jesus is the suffering servant. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm, you will not allow your holy one to, uh, to undergo decay. Again, there's Psalm 1610. And so again, what is the gospel based on? It's the seed promise. It's the promise that we just looked at. The promise that one day the Messiah would come. And what would he do? He would crush the serpent's head. And he would do all the things that we read about in the scriptures concerning him. Um, Acts 26.6, this is uh, Paul now before Agrippa. And he says, And now I am standing trial for the hope of, again, here's the definite article, the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to obtain. Isn't it interesting? Paul is being persecuted by the Jews because he's proclaiming the very promise that they look forward to. And so now when the promise arrives, then they're angry at him for it? Can you think of the audacity? The promise arrives, he announces it, and they get mad at him. <laughs> no, deed goes, uh, no good deed goes unpunished, does it? Right? Isn't that the way of the world? So again, friends, the, the pro- promise of the gospel focuses on the Messiah and this, this seed promise. And again, we have the definite article. And it's all over the place. Let's look at Romans 4.13. Remember, remember in Romans 4, I think it's in verse 10, Paul makes an exquisite point. And the point is this. He asked the question, was Abraham justified before circumcision or after? And of course, it was before circumcision. Why is that important? Well, because the gospel has no strings attached. 
the gospel is, I should, well, let me just rephrase it. It's better to say the gospel is before anything we do. It's completely by God's grace. Okay? It's completely by God's grace. So Paul picks up on the idea that in verse 13 he says, For, again, the definite article, the promise to Abraham or to his seed, again, in the singular, that he would be heir of the world, not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Okay, Romans 4.16, he continues, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. He continues, Romans 4.20-22, he says, Yet with respect to the promise of God, again, definite article, he did not waver, that is Abraham, in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. So let's stop there. The point being, that's Genesis 15, 6. And so what did Abraham believe? He believed in the promises of God, that God had promised that the seed would come from him. Abraham in Genesis 15, prior to Genesis 15, 6, right in the first few verses, he says, I have Eliezer of Damascus, and he's my only heir. How do I know that I'm going to receive the promise? What does God do? He takes him upside and he says, look at the stars, so shall your seed be singular. Abraham knows it's a reference to the Messiah. And it says he believed him and was credited to him as righteousness. Okay. Now, we'll talk more about that. The seed promise also has to do with the many, the descendants as well. Now we come to Romans 9, 8. It says that that is, it is not the children of the flesh, Paul says, who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as seed. Now let me talk about this. In in Romans chapter 2, Paul declares to the world who God views as being Jewish. Romans 2, 28 through 29 says, A man is not a Jew if he is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, not of the written code, but by the Spirit. So Paul's whole point is that the seed, that is the many, the descendants who would end up finding messianic salvation, were never confined merely to the physical descendants of Abraham but it was anyone who would believe in the seed. Okay, anyone who would believe in the Messiah, whether you're Jew or Gentile. And we're going to be looking at this next week because we see that very promise in Genesis 12:3, where the blessing of Abraham would be to how many of the nations? All the nations, not just to Israel. And so therefore we see that Messianic salvation always was for both Jew and Gentile. In fact, I did a paper in... in uh, And Isaiah 56, Isaiah 56, God promises that, in fact, the foreigner cannot consider themselves estranged from his covenants. And even the eunuch, who has been, a lot of times uh, kings would get eunuchs within their harem, um, and these men had no promise, according to the Hebrew concept, because they couldn't have children, right? But yet, even they would be considered blessed. Why? Even though that they were foreigners, even though that they were eunuchs, if they drew near to faith and they partook in messianic salvation, they would be considered blessed. That's how important messianic salvation is. And that's exactly what Paul is saying, that salvation has been from yesterday, today, and forever. It's always been the same. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, it's always only through belief in the seed that is in the Messiah. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 3, 29, he says, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. And so right now, friends, you and I, through faith in Christ, we're Abraham's seed. And when we go, whether the Lord tarries, I don't know what's going to happen. We don't know the future. But whether if we die and we go to the ground and our soul goes to be with the Lord or we're raptured, and we're given a resurrected body, the point is, is we're with the Lord of heaven and earth. We're with the Lord of Israel. We're with the Lord of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through faith in Christ. And it's the same promise again yesterday, today, and forever. Now, one more point that I want to make. Now, let me just stop before I put this up even. Again, in order to be a partaker in messianic salvation, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. But the point is, if you believe in Christ, you become an 
um, you enter into the promises of the church. Okay? So by faith in Christ, you enter the church. So apart from the church, you will not partake in the promises of God. Not because salvation is found... Um, I want to be careful how I say this. It's not that the church in itself has salvation. It's that when you trust in Christ, you become the part of the church, you see. But realize that the promises, there's a land promise. There's going to be physical promises associated with the salvation. That's coming to Israel. Okay? So it's, it's not that Israel's been thrown under the bus or there aren't promises left. No, you believe whether Jew or Gentile in the Messiah and you become a partaker of the church and then one day you become a partaker in the promises that are coming to Israel. Okay? And so that's one of the points here that I think we glean in Hebrews 11, talking about the, the promise of the land. Hebrews 11 talks about the hall of fame of faith here with Abraham. Verses 8 through 9, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, and I think that's the effectual calling, it said, Obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in the tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. And so the point is is that there's this land of promise, and we're going to be examining now this next week, and I'm going to be proving to you that from Genesis 9, Genesis 11, and Genesis 12, this land was actually given to Christ. And because the land of Israel belongs to Christ, if you are in Christ, the land belongs to you, okay? And so I want to be laying this out, that the land promise is actually first to Christ and by extension then to the many. So it belongs to the one and then to the many. And so you can see why it's so egregious that the world will attack or try to divide Israel because it belongs to the seed, it belongs to Christ. So the, the promise that I want to leave you with is this in Ezekiel 37, 24 through 25, related to the land. It says, My servant David will be king over them. Now remember, David had been dead for how long when this is written? 500 years. So it's not talking about David. Who is it talking about? It's talking about Messiah. It's talking about Jesus. And they will have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. By the way, is that teaching a works-based righteousness? Certainly not. Certainly not. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's up to verse 9. Verse 10, For we are his workmanship, that is God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So when I obey him, when I keep his statutes, when I take the law and I put it in my heart, the only reason I can do so and to be pleasing is because God has his Holy Spirit within me, which is the promise of the new covenant. And how did the Holy Spirit enter me? It was through faith in Christ. Okay, so again, it's by grace. All right, so he gets all the glory for any obedience that I accrue in my life. And it says, they will live on, a land, on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant. And who is it that will live in that land? It says, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it. They and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Who are the sons and their sons' sons? Remember, Paul said in Romans 2:28 through 29, a Jew is not one who was outward. Circumcision isn't merely outward and physical. A Jew is one who was inwardly Jewish. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, isn't it? And so the point is, is I'm going to be one of those sons. You're going to be one of those sons or daughters, right? Because you have faith in the Messiah. So the land belongs to you. So today the promised land belongs to you because it first belongs to Christ. Okay? And I want you to think about that as we look at the events in Israel. It, that's your land. That's your land too. You're not resurrected. I mean, you're not going to be just floating around ethereal, in an ethereal being on a cloud strumming a harp. And maybe you like harps, but that's not what you're going to be doing. The kingdom isn't coming to Minnesota. The kingdom isn't coming to New York. The kingdom's coming to Israel. But the only way to be part of it is by faith in Christ and being part of the church now. Okay? But the kingdom isn't coming to New York. It's not coming to any other city. It's coming to Israel. The capital will be Jerusalem, and David will be reigning over it. Okay? So let me give you a summary then. Again, we learned this evening that marriage is a covenant relationship. It's established by God of one man and one woman. 
Okay, the world today says, well, it can be Adam. It's, it can't, doesn't necessarily have to be Adam and Eve. It can be Adam and Steve, right? Well, that's wrong. They're, what, they're, what they're trying to do is they're trying to be autonomous. They'll, they want to be self-lawgivers, right? That's what they're trying to do is to say, we'll figure out, we'll be our own God. They're just following the serpent in Genesis 3. Um, it is an object lesson of Christ in the church. We see that in Ephesians 5.32. God uses object lessons in life. We know what it is to be a bondservant of Christ because we see bondservants in this life. We know what it is to wake to the resurrection because every day you and I go to sleep and we wake up again. Uh, we wake up to a new dawn. We have object lessons like in Ephesians 5.32. Every time a man and a woman are in, they're in the confines of marriage, it's actually a picture of the Messiah coming for his bride. And so this is scriptural, that we have these object lessons. And so these point, day after day, they proclaim this glory that this is actually all about God. It's about him. And so I I love the fact that marriage between one man, one woman, is a picture of Christ coming for his church. So you can see how disgusting it is then when people distort it because it's distorting the object lesson of what it all points to. Men and women sin because they are sinners. Again, Psalm 51.5 uh, I was born in iniquity and, and in sin did my mother conceive me, right? The imputed sin of Adam necessitates regeneration and the imputed righteousness of Christ. Number three, the entire Bible is built around the first gospel promise in Genesis 3.15. If we don't understand Genesis 3.15, we don't understand the rest of the Bible. Let me just bring this home for you. If you're going to do any mentoring, if you're going to do any discipleship of a new Christian, do not shy away from Genesis 3.15. It should be the first thing you go to. They will not understand the Bible unless you teach them Genesis 3.15. It is of first importance. Teach them their sinfulness um, earlier on in Genesis 3. Teach them, first of all, Genesis 1.1. Teach them who God is, that he created all things ex nihilo. But then make sure that you teach them that they're sinners and then show them the first gospel and show them throughout the scriptures where you see this promise. And they will start to understand the Bible very quickly. Okay? Uh, Number four, the seed promise informs us that salvation has always been the same yesterday, today, and forever through faith in Christ. We're going to talk more about that next week when we get to the Abrahamic covenant. You're going to be amazed at the beauty of the Abrahamic covenant. And then finally, saving faith in Christ makes one a member of the church, but the kingdom is coming to Israel. It's not coming to Minnesota. And thank goodness, right? It's cold here, (laughs) right? It's coming to Israel. But friends, the only way to be partakers of it is through faith in Christ now, whether whether you're Jew or Gentile. So with that, I thank you. I threw a lot at you again. And with that, I'll be quiet and take your comments or questions.